Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. We're coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman, and happy International Women's Day. To mark this event, we have a special guest on Fourth Estate this week. Her name is Jane Gilmore. She is a writer, a journalist, a feminist, and the founder of the Fix It Project, which fixes headlines that blame victims for the violence enacted upon them. Jane, thank you so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. If I could ask you first when and why you started the Fix It Project. Fix It started... A couple of years ago, the actual thing with the, the red pen through the headline and rewriting it started with a headline, um, I think it was on news.com, about Townsville police say selfie leads to stabbing. And I just looked at it and thought, a selfie didn't stab anybody and a selfie doesn't cause stabbing. That's just ridiculous. And I think I just did it on my phone and snapped it off to Twitter and didn't think anything more of it at the time. But um, it got a lot of attention and it really started to make a difference, so I just kept doing it. It almost happened by accident, but I think the original idea came from the reporting of Tracy Connolly's murder in St Kilda, where pretty much every publication in the country described it as St Kilda sex work or St Kilda prostitute killed. And it was just outrageous. Tracy was a person and a woman as much as any other woman is, and the fact that she was murdered so horribly and then denied her very humanity by my profession I just made me feel sick and the idea of the red pen and the rewriting it hadn't occurred to me at that time but I did write about that and that did start to focus my attention on the way newspapers were reporting violence against women. And when was that? That was 2012 when Tracy was murdered but it was I think it was about 2014 that the the red pen and the rewriting it um, came to mind and I think the reason it's so effective is it's the picture paints a thousand words thing. Instead of writing a thousand word article about why this headline is wrong, you draw a line through it and rewrite it so that you're demonstrating exactly what's wrong with it and people can see it in an instant. Right. And do you ever, I mean, I think I see in some of the posts, you do go into the, the body of the article and the way that it's written, but your focus is mostly the headlines. Is that right? 
That's right, and there's a, a specific reason for that. When we used to have newspapers and you would read, you'd see the, the front page and you'd see the headline and then you'd see the text underneath it, even if you didn't read the article, you could skim through it. The way we consume news now, almost nobody reads a paper newspaper cover to cover. We get um, most of it on Facebook or we might even skim through the, the front page or the home page of a news website. But something like 80% of the headlines that we see, we never even see the text of the article. It's not even that we skim past it and don't pay much attention to it. We don't even see it. We just see the headlines. And the, what the headline is supposed to be is a summary of the facts in the article, for a news article. What I'm finding, particularly with the headlines about violence against women, it's they're not a summary of the facts. They are a diversion from the facts, if anything. And do you think that there's uh, a malicious intent behind it, that it's, you know, trying to make things scandalous and exciting for the readers, or is it pure ignorance on the part of people writing them? I certainly don't think it's malicious, or maybe in some very, very rare tabloidy cases, but no, I don't think it's malicious. I don't think news editors are sitting around stroking white cats and plotting out (laughs) how they can diminish people's understanding of violence against women. Of course not. I think there's a combination of problems with it. Part of it, I do think, is male-dominated newsrooms that most editors, particularly in Australia, are men. I think there's one woman, I could be wrong, but the last time I checked, there was one woman news editor of all the major publications in Australia. So part of it is just the perception problem that because men are very rarely the victims of sexism, they just don't see it when it happens. If you point it out to them and they can see it, they go, oh, yeah, oh, now I see it, but they don't automatically see it. So part of it is just a perception. I think there is a a touch of the not all men thing to it, that, oh, we don't want to say that all men are violent. Well, you're not saying all men are violent. You're saying this particular man was violent in this particular case. There's a little bit of sensationalism in it in some of the really bad ones. So there's a a lot of different reasons that contribute to it. There's also just um, tradition. This is the way it's always been done, so therefore this is the way we continue to do it. I don't think there's any one particular reason to it. I think there's a combination of all those reasons. Something that sort of surprised me and then on the other hand didn't was that going through your website and looking at each of the examples, plenty of those articles, the byline is a woman. I guess when I worked in a newspaper newsroom, I actually didn't write my headlines. Do you think, though, that there is that a woman is less likely to write one of these headlines that need fixing? And do you think that there's more men that are are writing them, which is why we see them so often? Um, I think so. I deliberately take the journalist's name off the picture when I do the fix because I know that most of the time journalists don't write their own headlines. Yeah, it's true. I did have to click through to go. I I mean, I was just curious, so I had to click through and find it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I write regularly for Fairfax and I can't remember ever writing a headline above any of my articles. It just, that's not how it works. And I know most people who read news don't necessarily understand that, so they will often blame the journalist for a headline that somebody else has written. In cases where the text of the article is also particularly bad, I might say something about that, but usually what happens, and you'll see it a lot in the fixed thing, is I say an otherwise good article has been let down yet again by a bad headline. So I think the problem is far more with the editors than with the journalists themselves. It's obviously not always true, but mostly that seems to be the case. Something else I noticed from clicking through is that often the headlines are fixed. The ABC had fixed up a couple. Um, Do you get much interaction with journalists or news editors or do they kind of silently fix it up? I've never 
Uh, no, once. One uh, journalist from the Brisbane Times got in touch with me to say that she was really concerned about the way something had been reported and really wanted to do better and wanted to talk about it, which I thought was great. That's the only time that it's happened where they've actually come back to me. It does happen quite a lot that the headlines get changed. That's not just about me, though. Usually that's in response to um, I put a post out and then people read it and are angry about it and they will often get in touch, make complaints. So that ABC one, I think I know the one you're talking about, there were dozens of people sending in complaints to the ABC on that. I think they were responding to the complaints more than anything else. Um, there have been a number of other times where the headlines have been changed after I've done a post about it, but I really believe that's a lot more to do with the public pushback than just one angry feminist yelling on the internet. <laughs> well, that's a good point you raise. Um, having seen your work pointing it out, it's it's amazing how many there are. Um, mm. And and I'd like to hope that you're not just one angry feminist on the internet. <laughs> are there other people, though, working in this space or trying to help newsrooms to stop doing this? Um, there's a lot of work being done on this. Our watch commissioned some research that was done by Margaret Simons and Jeannie Morgan on the effects of uh, media reporting on public perceptions of violence against women. And that research really did show the difference in what happens when you report just the facts, what happens when you give context to it, what happens when you include the, the victim-blaming myths, how people will perceive what's happened, how they think, how important they think it is, where they think the blame should be apportioned, those kind of things. It, it really does make a huge difference. Um, our watch has been doing a bit of stuff on this. As far as I know, I'm the only one that that's really sort of concentrating on it. But um, this is not the point. The point that I'm making, I guess, is that this is not just me doing it. If it was just one voice shouting in the wilderness, it wouldn't get any traction. It's because when I do it, so many people respond to it, and it's also the thing that that they keep coming back to me and saying, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it, and then the other people will pick it up. So even the headlines that I don't get time to get to or I haven't actually seen, people will go back to the publication and complain about it and tag me in it. So I'll see, oh, this is happening without any interference from me. And so you've never been invited into any newsrooms to... to... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know that they're watching, though, because as I said, sometimes the headlines themselves change. And the other thing that I do, because it's not just all about saying, hey, you're getting it wrong, is I'll try and make an effort when I've got the time to find ones where, this, yes, this is how you do it right. This, it's actually not difficult. You can do all of these and, and obviously comply with all the legal obligations and report violence against women and children accurately and respectfully. And so I'll put them out and say, you know, the Daily Telegraph, I think, last week, and I will admit to some surprise, but they did. They <laughs> did a, a great report on something. And suddenly all the journalists are, are sharing that one. So I know that they're watching. Um, nobody likes to be criticised or called out for that kind of thing, and I can completely understand it. But I know that they're watching because they also will interact with the ones where I say, yes, this is how you do it right. While we are, though, sticking with the criticism and calling out, I just want to know, are there any uh, publications that are worse than others? Um, yes. <laughs> and which are they? I, I noticed that the regional papers, in Queensland are probably the ones that come up the most. So these are not things where I go specifically searching through individual publications. I have Google searches set up so I get like 15 emails a day on various search terms. 
So they go, they search across all the publications. One of the reasons that I do it that way is because, well, just to save time, but also it prevents any bias from me where I, I'll just concentrate on one particular newspaper that I'm finding problematic. Google does the search for me. And then I read through all the emails and check all the headlines. The, the Queensland regional papers come up a lot. Yeah. The ABC makes a surprising number of appearances and fixed it. And it's, it's, the response usually is surprise because we expect better from them and usually they are better. So when they get it wrong, they tend to get it spectacularly wrong. <laughs> and it's really a surprise because you don't expect it from the ABC. Yeah, yeah, I've got to admit that is a surprise to me as well. Mm. I wonder, it's certainly my impression, and and I wonder if you would agree with this, that in the past sort of two to three years we have seen more reporting of domestic violence, of of family um, and partner violence. I mean, I guess firstly, would would you agree with that? I kind of sort of… Yes, that's definitely true. Yeah. And so then has it gotten worse since that has happened because we're seeing more reporting or would you say like, you know, comparing now and five years ago, what's your observation? I think because it happened relatively quickly, a lot of journalists weren't quite sure how to manage it because family violence went from it's a private matter or it's a isolated incident to a very quick public change in how we talk about it. And I think they were having trouble keeping up with that because it, it really was something that, oh, well, we don't get into that. That's a that's a private matter. Or if there was something particularly sensational, it's an isolated incident rather than talking about family violence as a social problem with all the context that really needs to go into that kind of reporting. It took them quite a while to catch up. I don't think it was um, a lack of Ill, of will. It was just, well, how do we go from everything we've been taught about report, not reporting on this to suddenly reporting on it differently where it's really become a, a matter of public discussion. How do we do that and understand all the complexities of it? And it is a very complex social issue. And journalists are... There's no specific domestic violence journalists, although I think there should be. Journalists are trying to do an enormous amount of reporting on a huge range of topics and trying to keep up with all of it isn't easy. They, there was no official training. There was no, there was nobody going into newsrooms saying, look, this is how you do it. These are the things that are problematic. These are the things you need to avoid. They kind of had to learn as they went. And there were some really good campaigns. Um, Ellen Winnett at the Herald Sun did a, a great thing with them a couple of years back and they, they really changed the reporting in Victoria on domestic violence and she really really led the charge on making sure that reporting was done well but when she moved on she left a space there and there was nobody with her expertise and understanding to be able to come in and, and keep that going so that was one of the things that came out in the research that Margaret Simons and Jenny Morgan did was it's very much dependent on one person within a news organization who has a deep understanding of the complexities of it and can train other people there's not a lot of people who can do that yeah, it's interesting because it seems to me um, comparing another equally complex and difficult to talk about issue in the media is the way that suicide is reported. Mm. And I feel like there's obviously a very clear set of guidelines. I think 
this, the Walkleys have one, but basically you do hear when and read um, when suicide is mentioned. You know that the, the method is 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 rarely disclosed. Mm-hmm. That often people will uh, that not often always they will mention if you know Lifeline or other counselling services at the end of a report in case um, that that has struck a chord or struck a nerve with someone. What would it take to get to an equal to an equal level with reporting violence against women and children? Look, I think we're slowly getting there. There are um, guidelines on the Press Council website about how to report these things, um, which not many people know about. I think the other problem that complicates this is there are legal issues. So um, newspapers are understandably quite risk-averse with reporting um, matters that are still before the court. So obviously you can't say somebody is a rapist if they have not been convicted of it. So the, the confusion between... Sex and rape, which comes up a lot in fixed it, is something that they don't quite know how to handle. I think it's it's a matter of time, it's a matter of um, education, it's a matter of willingness on behalf of the newsrooms to take this seriously and to understand that that they have a huge impact on the way they on the way the public understands these issues when they when the press doesn't understand it properly themselves. That there is an obligation to educate themselves. I think that's becoming more and more obvious and over time it is happening. Possibly that's why the the regional press find it more difficult. They have less time, less resources, far more things they have to cover, particularly in Queensland and a much wider area. So I think it's it's time and refusing to give up on saying, no, you've got to do this better, you've got to do this better, you're still not getting it right, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And... I think that's probably the only thing that's going to work. They have to be willing to to make that effort to understand it, to go through the press council guidelines and read it, to take the feedback from their readers and understand what they're telling people with the headlines and the articles that they're publishing. It's like any kind of social change. I think it takes time and a refusal to give up. The myth that women cause violence perpetrated against them and then that they lie about it, that's obviously not just in the media. That doesn't come just from the media. Um, What other domains of society could you identify as places that really need to change in order to change these myths? Um, I think there's a bit of a, a cycle that goes through the legal system and the media where they reinforce each other. And obviously, by no means all, but there are still some judges and magistrates who subscribe to those myths, often without even knowing it themselves. There was some research I was looking at um, a year or two back that looked at murder trials where the accused were men and the accused were women, and they looked at the difference in language that the judges used about them. And the men who were accused of murder were given excuses and, and some compassion. You were deeply troubled, you were very jealous, you've been going through a rough time. The women were wicked and evil and heartless and callous. There was no excuses for them because women are supposed to be nice and kind and nurturing and men are the victims of their own emotions that they can't be expected to manage. So those underlying biases still exist in the legal system. Um and I see it sometimes in some of the court reporting and in sitting in court sometimes. You, you can see those biases that, oh, well, men couldn't help themselves because they were jealous. Women caused that jealousy. So therefore, they were the cause of the acts that men chose to commit against them. I think that feedback loop from the legal system to the media happens a lot. So judges say that, the media reports it, and there's a complication that in court reporting... 
you actually couldn't give an interpretation of what the judge says. If you're reporting on a trial, particularly one that hasn't concluded yet, it would be irresponsible and possibly content to be saying, well, what the judge should have said was this. You couldn't do that. But it reinforces with the journalists that this is what the legal system thinks, this is what the public thinks, and then also, in some ways, you're contaminating the jury pool because you're saying, reporting to the public, this is what's happening in the legal system, this is how we perceive it, and then those people who are reading that eventually end up on juries. So that loop through the media, the legal system, and back to the public is a particularly troubling one. Um, I think it happens a lot in sport too, although that's been um, changing more quickly than the legal system's been changing. Possibly in before the last few months in uh, pop culture and entertainment, movies, media, TV shows, those kind of things were often perpetuated. I think the Me Too movement over the last few months I hope we'll change that, but we'll see what happens over the next year or two. They're all connected. They're, none of them sit in isolation with each other. They all loop over each other and feed back and reinforce each other. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Me Too movement because I was going to ask you about that and also specifically about if you have any opinion on some people's ideas that this Me Too moment, while it seems to be doing great things right now, might spark a bit of backlash and send us backwards. That is always possible, but I think um, some of that backlash started from the beginning. There were all those people that were labelling it a witch hunt. The idea that women speaking publicly about their experiences could be called a witch hunt is mind-boggling, but the backlash started immediately. I think the important thing about that was that the women, all those thousands and thousands of women who were talking about their stories and their experiences didn't allow that to stop them talking about those experiences. In fact, if anything, I think it it reinforced the need for it. It strengthened the bonds with the women who were supporting each other. Of course, there's going to be backlash. Of course, there is. But the the strength of it, I think, is in the women working together to support each other and to refuse to back down in the face of people telling them to stop speaking about their experiences. Of course, one of the other ways there is backlash is people pointing out that it's not just women who are victims of domestic violence. And certainly I've read some of the comments on the bottoms of some of your articles, and that is also a reg- regular criticism made, you know, that women perpetrate violence and, and sexual assault too. So I just wonder if you can just help me to quantify that for any of our listeners who might be thinking the same. Well, firstly, um, I agree that absolutely men are also the victims of um, domestic violence and sexual assault, not to the extent that women are, but they certainly are. And anybody who is the victim of something like that absolutely should be believed and should be supported. That is goes absolutely without question. I think the thing that, that most of us are trying to say is that that's not a reason to not talk about female victims. It doesn't come up in response to people saying there are no male victims. It comes up in response to people saying there are female victims. And it's almost, uh, we'll stop talking about them and talk about men. And yes, we should talk about male victims, but in this particular case, I'm talking about female victims. The fact that male victims also exist should not be used as a reason to not talk about female victims. The other point, I think, is the argument about the perpetrators, which is one that I really do get into, um, the overwhelming majority of perpetrators of violence against both men and women are men. And if you're talking about how we address the source of the problem, you can't address the source of the problem by talking about the victims because the victims are not the source of the problem. The perpetrators are. 
So to do that, you have to know who they are. You have to understand how this happens. Where did they get to that point? Is Are all their experiences the same as they aren't? Is the, the thing that drives them to violence or means they can't make better decisions in those moments, where does that come from? The only way that you can address the root cause is to understand all those things and to do that you have to know who the perpetrators are. And they are overwhelmingly men. There are the rare cases where women are perpetrators, that's absolutely true, but they're the exception, not the rule. To understand that it's not always an easy thing to do because the data we have is mixed. So there's um, data that we have on people that commit murders and almost all domestic violence homicides are committed by men, again, against both men and women and children. In the cases where women commit murder of, say, intimate partner violence, there is almost always a history of violence where the woman was the victim of the violence. So why can't we intervene then and say, well, if a woman gets to the point where she has to kill her abusive husband to get away from him, obviously something should step in before then so that that does not end up being the result. On the rare occasions where women do commit murder, where they're not defending themselves, then that's just wrong in the way that anybody committing murder is wrong. With the people who commit sexual violence, it's something like 98% of perpetrators of sexual violence are men. So understanding this is not saying all men are rapists or all men beat their wives. It's saying most of the people who commit these crimes are men, and then we have to ask the question, why? And what can we do to change that? Because men are not born this way. Men are not born to be rapists and wife beaters. They're taught to be that way. How can we teach them something different? Because they also believe they don't want to be that way, even the men who do it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point that you make about focusing on the perpetrators rather than the victims. I, mm. I, I read an interesting uh, an article you wrote earlier this year uh, in response to a men's rights activist website that was spreading some infographics about the proportion of men experiencing partner violence and with something like a 500% increase. And can you just uh, walk us through what was wrong with that figure, aside from the fact that, once again, it is focusing on the victims rather than the perpetrators? Well, there's a, firstly, there's a couple of things wrong with, with those men's rights activists, that there are so many things that men need advocates that the, the suicide rate amongst men is so much higher than it is amongst women, that men are so much more likely to be incarcerated to suffer substance abuse addictions. The only social issue that men are least at risk is domestic violence, and it seems to be the only one that men's rights activists focus on. So I find that disturbing, and when you look at what they're doing, usually what they're, they're not actually advocating for men, they're advocating against women. That part of it worries me. As far as their numbers and their cherry-picking of the data and that 500% increase, it was a, a very small technical detail taken from one of the tables in the personal safety survey. Now, the personal safety survey has hundreds and hundreds of individual data points in it. To take one single data point, and this was a comparison from memory between the 2016 one and the 2005 one, and the 2005 table whatever figure it was that they'd used, was marked by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So this wasn't my opinion. This was marked by the ABS as having a standard error rate of over 50% and should not be used for reliable information. It's an indication, which is what the Personal Safety Survey is. It's a report on people's understanding of the violence they remember being enacted against them. And it's a good indication, but it's still just an indication. 
So my problem with it was was that they were taking one very small data point, but because you were taking a very, very small number from an unreliable start over 10 years where the way that we report and understand violence has changed so much, it was just a meaningless number, but it was blown completely out of proportion and used as, look at what's happening to men. And there are other ways of doing that, of, of advocating for male victims, of advocating for the things that men actually need, better understanding, more public debate, more care, more attention. There are much better ways of doing that than saying men are victims of this more than women are, because it's just patently not true. I've heard you speak uh, about the problem describing uh the rape of children as child sex. Um, I mean, in fact, that word sex just on its own, what kind of advice would you give to journalists when they're using the word sex in reporting violent crimes against women and children? Well, I would say particularly when it comes to children, you don't ever use the word sex. Sex is something that happens when there is consent for everything that happens between everybody involved. Children, by definition, cannot give consent. They are legally, morally, emotionally incapable of giving consent to any sexual abuse that happens from an adult. So it should just be an outright, if there are children involved, it's not sex. It's child abuse, it's sexual abuse, it's sexual assault, it's any one of a number of terms that accurately describe a crime because any kind of sexual abuse between an adult and a child is abuse. It's not sex. When you're talking about legal issues where you're reporting that somebody's been accused of something or is on trial of something. Journalists talk about it as if it's a difficult thing to report on, and certainly the subject matter is difficult, but reporting it accurately is not difficult. It's, it's not a difficult thing to say that Mr. X was accused of sexual abuse of children. He was not accused of having sex with children because nobody can have sex with children, so it's factually incorrect, and nobody is ever charged with sex because sex itself is not a crime. It's only a crime when there is no consent. And I think one of the... The things that journalists have a real responsibility in this is to the victims of sexual abuse of children. The effects last a lifetime. So for adults reading that and reading something that was done to them described that way, re-traumatizing because what it's saying to them is it's an implication that you were a party to this. Sex is something to which two people consent. If it was sex, then you consented to this and no child can consent to this. It strikes me that actually the advice you're giving almost makes it easier for journalists in that they can just stick to the legal facts, uh, right. you know, the charges brought against a person, and perhaps that maybe some of this this language is actually employed in a way, even subconsciously, to sort of lessen uh, the intensity. But I think that could be the case, and it's, it's possibly also lessening the intensity a bit for the audience, that, that read, they, these are horrific crimes, and, and they can make you feel sick to read about, and nobody wants to be thinking about raping children when they're eating their breakfast. It's it's a horrible and, and confronting thing to read. Yeah. So I can understand that possibly journalists are trying to lessen the impact of it, but we are journalists. It is not our job to, to make our audiences feel comfortable. It's our job to tell them the truth about what's happening. And the truth about what's happening when you're talking about child abuse is that it is abuse. It's not sex. Jane, I think that is a good point for us to end on. Uh, where can our listeners find you? So I've got the website where I keep all the fix-its, which is janegilmore.com, and I also write a weekly column for the Sydney Morning Herald. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Fourth Estate. 
Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for us this week on Fourth Estate. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you're already subscribed, we would love it if you would leave us a review or even just tell a friend about the show. Stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. My name's Olivia Rosenman, and you can catch us next week on Fourth Estate.